0: Now, I want to take a moment of personal liberty this week uh, to speak about week one or speak on year one because I'm grateful. In fact, I'm indebted to you because you have given me a year to learn and to grow uh, with Pastor Don, and I'm grateful. Thank you for allowing me to come and work through this year with you. I've learned a great deal. And even more so, I am thankful that God brought us together uh, in this place. Now, there has been a common question recently, uh, and it usually goes something like this. So, so what are you going to do? Or what's next? Or maybe if they really want to get to the point, so what are you going to change? Now, I will tell you this, much of the feel of the First Baptist Church of San Antonio will stay exactly the same. The sweet fellowship of this church is good, and there's much good that should remain. Uh, There is one thing, though, that may change. No, it will change. That's directly related to the strength of Don Guthrie. Because 23 years ago, He was brought here as pastor to be the healer here, and Don has faithfully done that. Don helped this church circle the wagons and get well in a time when we needed to get well together. And it's because the Lord worked through Don Guthrie that we can now say this church is in a healthy place And I'm eternally grateful for the work that Don realized here by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that does have direct implications for me. You see, it's a blessing for me that I don't have to come in and circle the wagons and help get us well, because Don has already faithfully done that. So now the real question before us isn't necessarily what's next, But rather, the question before us then is, so what does a healthy church do? Right? To honor the faithful service that the Lord has done through Don Guthrie here, getting us well, we now have a responsibility to serve this city as healthy churches do. That's where I come in. And I imagine that'll be one of the biggest changes that you see in attitude going forward. That attitude shift from getting us healthy to asking the question, what then do healthy churches do? And whatever that is, wherever God leads, that is what we are going to do. Because you may know this, but it's really easy for a church that comes to a place of health to become lazy. See, when you're unhealthy, there's all kinds of things to do. There's all kinds of work for you to be about to get things right. You have to diligently plan and work your tail off to get back to the center. And it seems like our natural tendency is once, once we come back to the center and, and get well to then just sort of breathe and relax. And that's okay for a moment. For us to step back and breathe and relax. But God didn't use Don Guthrie to get us healthy so that we could coast. God used Don Guthrie to get us healthy so that we could get to work for the kingdom of God. See, I hope you hear me in this. God brought all of us in this room together. And he didn't bring me here a year ago and bring you here through the ages so that we could just come together and sit in our recliners, right? We we are to come to this place and be about the mighty work of the kingdom of God. And as the mighty work of the kingdom of God happens in this city, we are going to be right in the middle of it, amen? Amen. Now, as I've prayed in the last year, discerning what God might have in store for us, I feel quite certain that God has given me, given me uh, three words. And I hope you've already heard me say these three words. We've, we've spoke of them often. But I do feel that God has given us a direction in, in three different actions, to repent, to witness, and disciple. And I anticipate those three words defining the next few years of our life together. And that if we get them right, our role in the kingdom of God will expand dramatically. Those three defining words, repent, witness, and disciple, will make us something new and fruitful. You're going to hear me reference those concepts often, coming back to them and making sure we're, we're centered in on those by the power of the Holy Spirit. The first place that you're going to hear me directly reference and teach those is in my very first time for teaching. On Sunday nights, we have what's called time for teaching, and Don has faithfully done those, and I'm going to continue that. In fact, September 16th is going to be my very first time for teaching in this church. And the first thing that I'm going to teach in time for teaching is to repent, the first of those three words. We're gonna explain what I mean by repentance. Explain how scripture describes repentance over and over and over again. We're gonna talk about how I do repentance personally. We're gonna talk about how repentance is going to happen in the church and how we can do that well and how that can define us. So make sure you already have September 16th, Sunday night, 6 p.m. on your calendars. And see, for each one of these, repent, witness, and disciple, we're going to fully embrace each one of us in this place. And this is what I mean by fully embrace, to fully embrace the concept. Let's first take just repentance, because that's the first one on the list. To fully embrace, I mean, we have to learn it inside and out, learn it, the thread of this uh, topic through the Scripture, and so we're going to learn it well. And we do that um, remarkably in this church. We are good at instruction. We're we're good at learning. We're gonna internalize what it means to repent. Some of the next steps we don't always follow through with uh, entirely though. From there, once we learn about repentance, we're gonna practice it. So you learn it, then you practice it. And we're gonna practice it in in our own lives develop the best practices for our personal situations. We're going to do that uh, in the church and in our personal lives. And then after we practice it, then we're going to teach it. Each one of us teaching others in the church what this concept means. So we're going to learn it and practice it and teach it every single one of us. I mean, if you're a part of the church, we're, we're all going to embrace this together. You're going to have to learn to repent and repent often. It's going to define us and transform us. And let me tell you what what I believe that's going to lead to. That's that's going to lead to hundreds of baptisms, hundreds of stories of redemption, uh, being told of how God stepped into people's lives and transformed them into a new creation because you were faithful at repentance and witnessing and discipling. In fact, may Guthrie Falls out there in the courtyard be filled with people week after week wanting to be b- baptized is a symbol of their obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord. In fact, I hope we have so many baptisms that Dave and Charlie will fret forever over the water bill. And by Charlie, I do mean Charlie will fret over the water bill. You know, one of the things that we do in our office is we keep track of the vital statistics, the numbers around the church and the way those are playing out. There's one in particular that I, I think will help us better understand how this progress is happening within the church. We're going to keep uh, an accurate count of our adult baptisms and keep them in front of us. Now, I'm not saying the children don't matter. They, sh- they surely do matter. And we'll keep baptizing them as they're ready. But I want you to hear me say this too. I, I know that a mark of a healthy church is adults coming to be baptized. And that's because you have repented and witnessed and discipled wherever you are and bringing those people around you who are ready to come to know Jesus Christ. People beyond our own church family impacted by the gospel in such a way that they cannot wait to make a public profession of Christ. And the only way that happens is you being repentant and witnessing and discipling over and over again. And one more thing, I have one more word of encouragement for you uh, before we get to the text for today. And we're going to get to the text. But there's one observation I've had uh, about this church Uh, I quickly noticed is that we are incredibly polite. And that is a marvelous trait that is ever fading from the world around us. You are to be commended for your politeness but. Now, here here is the but. There are moments, especially in this room, when we are unnecessarily polite. Now, I want you to hear me say this. Now, I wouldn't say this outside of these walls. I wouldn't say this to anybody else in our community, but I'm saying this to you. Uh, Sometimes you are too polite. Sometimes we are way too polite in worship. It's almost as if we're sitting on our hands in worship, just politely waiting for it to be over. Now, I don't mean that you're not into it. I I know that you're into it. I know that you're politely paying attention, which is good. And it means the world to me that you're politely paying attention in your pew. But in this room, we need to learn a little bit of freedom uh, we might need to act a little bit more like Aaron uh, up here. Amen. I, I'm giving you permission this morning, and, and maybe even more than permission. I'm actually encouraging you to step out of your comfort zone in worship with us. This, this is in my notes, Aaron, I promise. You can say amen. It's, it's okay to do that in this room. And in fact, I've got a little bit of a confession to make for the next one, too, but but I'll make the confession afterwards. Um, It's okay to have your kids in here, and your kids make noise in here, and for your kids to be coloring and crawling in here. We want kids in here. In fact, I I say that confessionally because I know my daughter is in here this morning, the first time. Today, we moved up the four-year-olds, and my my lovely four-year-old Ellie is in this room for the first time. And you know what, it's, it's okay. It's okay if they make noise and they color, they step on our toes. It's a beautiful thing to have our children in worship. Amen? And, and there's one more here. When we have our response time, we're way too polite. In fact, I hear this often. In, in, in our response time, we're, we're awfully politely thinking of Aaron You don't don't have to be polite to Aaron. We're (laughs) often, especially during the response time, Uh, we're we're often uh, politely thinking of our TV congregation. But you know, in in this room, if if we're responding, just just respond. Um, We're often too politely thinking about the people sitting on the row around us or the person sitting on the end that has to get up. When it's time to respond, you don't need to think about the person at the end of the row that has to move so you can get through the aisle. You know, when it's time to respond, you don't have to worry about Aaron and what he's going to have to do. If he has to sing ten extra choruses, so be it. If we have to sing more because the altar is flooded, so be it. It would be a good day in the house of the Lord. In fact, I'm begging you this morning to make Aaron uncomfortable (laughs) as best you can. Let the world know you care. Let, let God know that you care. Let the church know that you care. Because sometimes, sometimes our politeness looks like apathy. Sometimes our politeness looks like apathy. But may our worship together be filled with personal responses to God over and over and over again. Now, to the text. If you turn with me, you notice in your bulletin there'll be a sheet that looks like this. And at the, the top of that sheet is our text for today. We're gonna, we're gonna read that text together. So let's stand and we'll read. This then is the text for today. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account may God bless the reading of his word Christ compels us to see people differently Christ compels us to a different kind of Christian kinship now we know apart from Christ we do see people rather selfishly sometimes when we step out of these walls we see people differently. In fact, we, we start to sort of look people up and down to see how they might benefit us. As Soon as they walk into a room, we wonder how this person can do something for me. We, we ask a doctor to look at this, or we ask a lawyer for their opinion on an upcoming matter, or we ask a banker for financial advice. We want to know how this person can help us. We want to know if this person is useful. And for better or for worse, if they are little help to us, we make little provision for them. We, we make snap judgments. And we make these snap judgments uh, on their character based on previous experiences. Uh, we might consider them just a little brother. Or we might con- consider them just some stranger that's sitting over there. But Christ compels us to see people differently. Even in our close friendships, we often think very selfishly. Uh, We we often think, does this person, this person my friend, um, do do I like this person? Or can I trust this person? If this person is going to be my friend, I have to be able to just kind of spill my guts to them and trust them in that. Or if this person is going to be my friend, I need to know, can I relax around them? If I can't relax around them, I don't think they can be my friend. That's often how we think of friendship. How how can this person benefit and affect my life and really make my life easier? Now, in our text for today, Paul is pleading with Philemon to listen to his Savior and see people differently. See people through a heavenly lens. Now, historically here in our text today, we need to know a couple of things. One, Onesimus uh, seems to be a runaway slave, which is the lowest of the low in ancient Roman culture. Uh, for them, slaves are about half a person, not even a whole person. And, and as we're dealing with this person who is a slave, Scripture is just coming down over Philemon saying, Think differently. See him. See people differently. Because the world around him was encouraging him to do things that Christ wasn't encouraging him to do. Because in that day, when a slave ran away, they were seen as the worst of fugitives. They were the worst of people. They were the dirt of the earth to be stepped upon. And in fact, uh, Philemon's peers would have been encouraging him to punish Onesimus as harshly as he could because that kept the order. And in fact... um, as they, he was seen as the worst of fugitives, there were all kinds of penalties at Philemon's disposal. He could have had Anisimus uh, brutally flogged. He could have had him branded. He could have sold him to work in the mines. In fact, he even could have had him crucified like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified. He could have had him thrown into the arena with wild beasts. Or even could have had Anisimus fit with an iron collar around his neck. It said something along the lines of, runaway slave, return me to my master. That's the way the Roman world would have dealt with a man like Onesimus. They saw him as the worst of humanity. But that's not what Jesus Christ saw. Christ saw differently. And practically, manumission was not enough. Because Philemon could have come to the church in his home and could have have looked around and said, okay, I I will set Onesimus free. But even setting Onesimus free was too weak for Christ. Because you must know that in that world, manumission didn't change the attitude or the heart about the other person. He could have just set him free. But a freed slave in that day was still seen as less than human. And most of the freed slaves still ended up working for the same people they were working before, under the same conditions they were working before. They were only given a different title. But Christ compels us to see the people in our lives differently. See, as Scripture unfolds, we, we see the heart of the matter is more than a title change. It's a change of heart for both of these men, for Philemon and Onesimus, Both of them had to change their heart. And and that's what Paul said as he's sending this letter and sending Onesimus along. He doesn't just say, I'm sending you back, your former slave. He says, I'm sending you my very heart. And he's no longer a slave. He is beloved. He is your brother in Christ now. And you treat him like a brother in Christ. Look through the heavenly lens and see him as a beloved child of God. See, th- these are not just titles that we're talking about in the text. These are, these are not just a plea for a light sentence. But this is a revolutionary way to see the people in the church as beloved children of God. Every single one of us. And here's the deal. I, I think we, we may know this. I don't know, you may not know this, but there are people... Uh, even in the church, that are hard to love. Uh, some, of this, some of us in this room can be difficult. There are times even your pastors can be difficult. There, there are people even in the church that, that annoy you. There are people even in the church that have wronged you. There may be people even in the church that just their presence makes your blood boil. And Christ says, this, this is more than a friendship. There's something deeper. There, there's this greater Christian kinship that's happening in this room. Christ compels us to see people differently. And if we come together as the body of Christ, we love each other with a love like we love our family, with a love like we love our own children. We're to see people in this room as beloved heirs of Jesus Christ brothers and sisters bought by that crucifixion. Now, the the difficulty in the text here is that the world would have seen Philemon behaving in this way as inappropriate. They would have seen it as as soft. Everyone around him would say, "You, you do not forgive this person. In fact, you need to punish him with everything that you can. And and if Philemon didn't do that, he was forfeiting his prestige. In fact, his peers would have begun to look down on him for taking this step. All of his contemporaries would have thought less of him for even entertaining the notion of forgiveness. But let me remind you, this world does not have a clue about how to treat people. In fact, even still, in, in recent days, we often hear the world lecturing the church on how to treat people. But let me remind you, this world does not have a clue how to love people. In fact, our only example, our only course of action is to love like Jesus Christ's love. And we listen to no one else about how we are to treat people. Culture around us doesn't know. They don't know how to love with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And and here's our scriptural reminder that it doesn't matter what they are doing and it doesn't matter what they are saying and it doesn't matter how they, outside these walls, perceive your actions. We are called to something greater. We are called to something different. We are called to an ancient and proven way of Jesus Christ to love our neighbor and receive our brothers in Christ with limitless grace. That's the call of our Christ. Now, now we know here in our text that this book is is specifically uh, referencing the treatment of a brother in Christ. Philemon is supposed to take care of Onesimus. But in the same way, beyond that, Christ compels us to see the world outside these walls differently, too. See, in one sense, we know that the world is in opposition to God. It's the way the world has set themselves up. But but even as the world sets itself up in opposition to God, we don't see them as enemies. They're not enemies of Christ. They're not enemies of the church. But the world is dying and broken and lost in need of compassion. The world is not an enemy to be destroyed. In fact, the reality is the people in the world are not the enemy. We have a greater enemy than the people in the world. The the people that surround us are caught up in something they do not yet understand. And it's our job as the church to love them and help them see clearly what our God teaches, how this world works. See, it all comes back to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the benchmark for our lives. And it was in his grace and because of his grace on the cross that he offered his people a way out. He saw the people of this world differently. He saw the people of this world not as enemies, but as people in desperate need of a Savior. Jesus did not and Jesus does not see you as an enemy. And he compels the church to think and see in the same way. You are a precious child of God in need of the love of your God, in need of your Savior. Jesus knows that, and he has shared his grace with you, and He shared it with each one of us. And so our response then is we offer that same kind of grace and that same kind of heavenly, holy forgiveness to the people that are around us. That same kind of grace and forgiveness flows out of our lives and flows out of the church, even among the most annoying people in our lives. Grace and forgiveness abounds. You see, the, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is built on the fact that Jesus Christ looked down upon you and did not see you as an enemy. We read Romans 5. There's this beautiful description of Jesus Christ where he says, you, you are an enemy of God. In fact, you were in complete opposition to God at one point in your life. But Jesus looked down and, and didn't see you as an enemy, but saw you as someone to be loved saw you as a sinner in need of salvation. And so we thank God. And we pray that that same grace that we have received in this place will flow out of these doors onto the city and that we would all know new life and stories of redemption. Let's pray together. Father, our time in this room is yours. It's not our own. And the time of response is yours. We, we are going to be completely obedient to your call upon our lives. Lord, stir in our heart. Help us to know your goodness and the call that you've placed on us today.